week we talked about a very important encounter with the disciples uh, that was very took place very very evening of Easter. <clears throat> but these appearances, that was not the only appearance. He appeared during a period of forty days, and this is explained to us in the beginning in the introduction to the book of Acts, which picks up quite literally where the Gospel of Luke left off. You should understand that Luke and Acts are a two-volume set. They, each book had a purpose uh, for being written by Luke, and they really are uh, best understood together uh, in terms of the major ideas and themes that are explored and brought out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As he reflects, uh, he's both introducing the book of Acts, but reflecting on the gospel, uh, I want to look at just the first five verses of Acts. This is a little bit of a, a foundation for our discussion tonight before we get to the main passage. And Luke writes that in the first book, of course, that's the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he looks back at the gospel. He gives us some insight into the purpose. Because at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he explains to Theophilus that he's setting out to write an orderly account of the things that he has heard so that he could be confident and certain in what he had been taught. And here he looks back at the content of that. says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I think that's an interesting phrase, that it's all that he began to do and teach. And I think that helps us understand that the book of Acts is detailing the ongoing activity of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, the work that is done through the body of Christ, the church, so that the story of Jesus doesn't just end with the end of the Gospel of Luke, with the account of the ascension that takes place at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. So Acts is very much focused on picking up from that, that point. So at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we see an account of the Ascension, but what we'll then be looking at today is a little more detail on that. Luke goes into a little more depth because he is seeking to set the foundation for the entire book of Acts and understanding the structure of the book of Acts, understanding the point of the book of Acts, and what was going on. He says in verse 3 that Jesus, he reminds us of exactly what we emphasized last week. He says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. And we talked about this a lot last week, so I won't belabor the point too much, that, that there was such an emphasis in the writing of Luke in the, in, in the encounter that Jesus had with the disciples there on making sure they felt 100% confident that he was himself, he was Jesus, he was alive. He was physically alive, not a spirit, not a ghost. He could be touched. He could be heard. Uh, he could be seen. He ate in front of them and so forth. So those are the kind of proofs that Luke is talking about. And, and he seems to allude to multiple appearances. They're not recorded in either the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, but he talks about them appearing to them during 40 days. Uh, so 
I would assume that's more than just what we see the beginning and the end of that period. And I think what's important to notice is the primary topic of conversation. It says it in verse 3 at the end. He says he was speaking about the kingdom of God. He, Luke is emphasizing two points of these appearances, two key themes, right? That Jesus is alive, that all of these proofs that he is alive, and then he is speaking about the kingdom of God. This is his primary topic. So he is with them for a short amount of time, right? He had been with them for three years. Now he's going through a period of 40 days with them, and his emphasis is on the kingdom of God. So it's important for us to understand this emphasis going forward. Uh, it's not about, uh, there are many things that are important for Christians, but we understand that this is the thing that Jesus was most investing in his disciples at this critical time. We need to understand this importance of the kingdom of God. You hear us talk about that a lot in church, I hope. Uh, but it is important to have that mentality. It's important to have that mentality more than a, a focus on the, the prosperity or success of an individual church, but rather an understanding that we are part of the kingdom of God, which is very much on the mind and heart of Jesus at this point. And so then in verses 4 and 5, he, he orders them to stay in Jerusalem for the time being and to wait for the long-promised baptism by the Holy Spirit. Right, we're going to talk about this more next week as we get into Acts chapter 2. But this was something that had been promised for a long time by the prophets, that the Holy Spirit, which would, in the Old Testament times, would come on a person for uh, on rare occasions, but would come on some of the great heroes of the Old Testament for a certain amount of time in their life. But the promise was that God was going to pour the Spirit out over many. And this is something we'll study next week. And he's saying, wait in Jerusalem. The time is coming for the pouring out of the Spirit. That where John baptized with water, they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our primary focal passage for tonight, which is first, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so we see, yeah, we saw last week, if you were here, that Jesus helped open the minds of the disciples. He gave them greater insight and understanding into Scripture, greater understanding into the big picture. But we see in verse 6, they still don't really have the big picture. Because he's with them, he's you know, risen from the dead, he, he's there, present with them, and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And what do they ask him about? They ask him about the kingdom of Israel. In their mind, they can't 
broaden their understanding of God's will, of God's plan, of God's kingdom beyond a physical kingdom in Israel, hoping to reach those glory years from, from King David and King Solomon. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I suppose it might be a logical question. That was kind of their limited understanding of Messiah. But it's one that misses the greater point that God was really not just seeking to make a nice kingdom for himself in Israel. He was seeking to redeem the world. He's seeking to restore creation. He has a much bigger picture in mind and always has. And that's what they're missing, right? And we can go back as far, almost as far as you want to go in the Bible. And I want to look at just a few of these passages that help us understand this plan that God always had after the fall to restore creation, to redeem mankind. And so I'm no, I won't go through the 10 billion or so passages about it. I exaggerate, but there are a lot. But I want to look at four key passages, three from Genesis and one from Isaiah. And we'll just say they are representative of a whole lot more. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is right during the time where God is handing down the curses for the fall. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He is talking here about the defeat of Satan. This was something that was well understood in Genesis. You'll see uh, later on in Genesis that people are praying that maybe their child will be the one that, that's going to be the one that defeats Satan. Uh, but of course, it takes a lot longer than that. And and then along in Genesis in chapter 12 comes this incredibly important promise, verses 1 through 3. And this is, what, this is where if they didn't get the first part, they really should have understood this because this was fundamental to the identity of the, of the Jewish nation, of the Israelite people. And it's, and it's the promise to Abraham, to Abram rather at this point. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And this is kind of the part that the, the disciples are kind of down with. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right, the promise to Abraham isn't just to his immediate descendants. It isn't just to the Jews. The promise of Abraham is that through Abraham, one will come who will bless all the nations, peoples from throughout the earth. This is something that is repeated a lot in Genesis to make sure that Abram never loses sight of the goal here, never loses sight of the promise. It's a promise that's reiterated to his descendants. So we'll see later in chapter 22, after, after Abraham has proven faithful and willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice, as a proof of his faith. Chapter 22, Genesis, verses 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That it's through the offspring of Abraham, because Abraham was willing to give up his son, though he didn't, in the end, actually sacrifice Isaac. He was not required to kill him, but he was prepared to. That ultimately, God did give up his son to be that sacrifice that's needed. And that through him comes the blessing for all the nations, not just Israel. They need to change their mindset as a people. And they should have seen it. They should have seen Jesus. Yes, he spent most of his time in Israel and most of his time talking to Jews, but they were there for three years, and we've talked some this year about encounters he had with Gentiles. And he didn't withhold his blessing from them. And so he wants, he's, he's getting ready for, to, to really expand their mind, if you will, warp their mind, if you will, to help them understand the bigger picture of what they're being called to do. I'll just read one last passage, but I assure you there are many more, right? If they were careful students of the Old Testament, they should have understood God's desire, his heart. This is not a new thing that comes in uh, with Jesus. God's heart has been for the redemption of those created in his image. I'm going to look at Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 7. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. There's nothing subtle about God's desire to bring back the nations. And yet what we see throughout the history of Israel is that they were so self Focus that they didn't get it. And the disciples are sadly no different at this moment in time when they want to know, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, don't worry about it. I got a bigger vision for you. It says in verse 7, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, this isn't your business. You aren't going to know the times. I'm not going to tell you the times. This is a message we see elsewhere in Scripture as well, which is why we should always be suspicious of anyone who thinks they have it all figured out and know what date Christ is going to return, what date this is going to happen, what date that's going to happen. These people arise periodically, uh, even get a substantial following in the case of one guy a few years ago, um, maybe about five years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of got to be quite the movement. Um, yeah, and uh, and all of it is a counter to Scripture, plain teaching of Scripture, which says we have a job, we have a mission, we as a church have things to do, 
and we don't need to know the time. We just need to be prepared all the time. And so in verse 8, he transitions from what you don't need to know to what you do need to know. Here's what you disciples really need to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is what they do need to know. They're going to receive power. Now, it's power with a purpose, right? It's not just power to conquer nations and, uh, or fight or do great martial arts or be superheroes and fly around or anything like that, although some of them do have interesting travel experiences. But they're receiving power, not their own power, right? They're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and that's all the power they need. He says you're going to get power, and it's going to be the Holy Spirit. That's all you need. And he says, this is power for a purpose. The very reason for this power is to be witnesses, to share the things they've seen, right? Remember what Lucas pointed out, the proofs that he demonstrated of his resurrection, the things that they had seen in the miracles and in the de- suffering, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They are called to be witnesses, to share what they have seen and heard. And they're not just witnesses in their neighborhood, They're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you can sort of think of this as concentric rings with Jerusalem in the center. Right, That's the city. They're then close by. They're in the the province of Judea. All right, and then north of that, I know it's not actually geographically a concentric ring, but kind of go with me here. A farther distance away, Samaria. Samaria is really just to the north. And then the end of the earth. Describing an outward movement of the church, an outward movement of these witnesses to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is an interesting contrast. This is a key moment for these disciples because earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had restrained them from going out beyond Jerusalem and Judea. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, he had sent them out on a training run, if you will. They they were equipped. He sent them out to proclaim the good news, but it was really kind of a, an opportunity for them to learn some things. To He gives them a little bit of power, a little bit of authority, right, to go out and, and, and heal the sick and, and cast out demons and basically proclaim the good news to be the witnesses, if you will. It's kind of a, a training run. He says, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So at that point, when they did not have the Holy Spirit, right? they just had some training, but he gave them a little authority to do some miracles. And he said, don't interact with the Gentiles and the Samaritans. Just 
focus on, if you will, your own people of Israel, functionally Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, uh, that area. But here he is unveiling God's plan for spreading the gospel. That and it's a and it's a really fascinating plan, right? He's not going to make flashing signs in the sky and, and billboards. Instead, he's going to spread the gospel through people, through people who are witnesses. As we read the the book of Acts, right? People who are amongst that group, and then and then it spreads from the those first disciples to to more to more outward. This is his plan to progressively reach the whole earth, all the nations, eventually with the good news. This progressive stepping, first in Jerusalem, the closest in, then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And, and what we see is, is an increasing distance and some increasing challenges for their ministry. And like I said, it's an interesting contrast, because while he was with them before his crucifixion, he had restrained them from ministering to the Samaritans and those who are the ends of the earth, while he himself, we should be clear in the Gospels, interacted with each of these groups. Yes, most of his ministry recorded in the Gospels is, is addressed towards you know Jews, people in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee. But we also know, for example, the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Uh, the healing of the ten lepers, one of whom was a Samaritan, the only one who bothered to say thank you. His healing of the centurion's servant. Uh, the uh, healing or casting out of the demon, I think, from the, the daughter of the Syrophoenician widow, Canaanite widow. right? So he has, in the Gospels, interacted with people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But to this point, the disciples have not. In fact, we even see one particularly... Uh, depressing episode of disciple failure where they want to ca- you know, call down fire to destroy a Samaritan village because it didn't welcome Jesus in. So there was some attitude that needed to be changed. He's giving them his command. Go to, go to people who, who, by the way, I know you all hate because you wanted to call down holy fire to destroy them because you were offended. Um, go to people at the ends of the earth who no decent self, self-respecting Jew from Israel would want to interact with if they could avoid it. And so as we look at these concentric rings, they represent not only an increasing distance from where they are and where they're most comfortable, but it's also an increasing cultural dis- difference. All right, he's commanding them to do hard, hard things here because when he's in Jerusalem and they're in Judea, yeah, they're preaching a message that's not terribly popular to some people. But the people understand the message fundamentally. They, they understand who God is. They, they love God. They have a dispute over Perhaps the understanding of God versus the, the new followers of Christ. But fundamentally, they're talking about the same God. They're, they understand the idea of Messiah, even if they have some misconceptions. But they're, they're kind of, there's not a lot of cultural barriers. The language is the same, background is the same. Then they have to move to Samaria. And here there's, more cultural difference. Not just that Jews and Samaritans pretty much hated each other from centuries and centuries of going after each other in violence and sort of an ethnic distaste for Samaritans as sort of a half-breed, half-Jew kind of person. But there is some cultural commonality. Uh, The Samaritans will say they worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, even though 
they worship him in the wrong way and in the wrong place. They'll say they're waiting for a Messiah. The Samaritan woman at the well talks about Messiah. She doesn't, they, they had a different understanding of Messiah. They done, it wasn't quite even what the Jews were expecting for Messiah. But again, they're using words that are kind of familiar. They're sort of monotheistic-ish. Not really strongly monotheistic, but they, you know, again, less cultural difference. But then you got to talk about the ends of the earth, right? They're given this task of taking, not just given a task, they're told you will. This is going to happen. You're going to take the gospel. is isn't just good news for Jews. It isn't just good news for Samaritans. It is good news for the whole world, and you're going to go witness. And here we're talking about people who speak different languages, although fortunately Greek was kind of the, the lingua franca of the day. It was the equivalent of English today. Um, most people who did business anywhere in the Mediterranean region would have spoken Greek. So there's some uh, facility there, but, but they're, they're talking about people with n- almost no familiarity with God, right? They're pagans uh, or functionally kind of godless. Um, so even if they officially followed state religions, they probably weren't all that serious about it in some cases. Um, the idea of death and resurrection, very strange, very, very strange. Uh, they're very polytheistic if they care about God at all. Um, the social and moral values are radically different, right? And you see that in the, the topics that have to be addressed in the epistles compared to the topics that are addressed in the gospels, right? The, 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 the sexual mores are different. The cultural norms are different. Uh, so this is really radically different stuff when they have to go to the ends of the earth. And yet he says, this is what you're going to do. And the fascinating thing is that in addition to this being their charge, their thing they were supposed to do, uh, this much huger vision than they ever imagined for, for Messiah and for following Christ, but it is also the literary structure of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is organized in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Just uh, it helps us uh, essentially understand what's going on. And and this is where he's setting the foundation. As he goes, this encounter that Luke is relating uh, at the ascension is setting the stage for us to understand what takes place in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is so very much about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is, I mean, we think of the book of Acts from a human perspective, it's about Peter and about Paul more than anybody else. But from a divine perspective, it is about the Holy Spirit so very much. Read it, look for references to the Holy Spirit, you'll see how many times the Spirit is involved. And particularly every time they transition from, make a hop from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the Holy Spirit is present and he's involved. And so what you'll see in, Acts 2 through 7, generically speaking, that's Jerusalem. Now, in the end of chapter 7 is the martyrdom of Stephen, the death of sort of the first martyr of the church. And that triggers a persecution that forces the church, except for the apostles, the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but triggers the church to scatter in Judea and Samaria. 
right? Persecution, ironically, forces the church to do the thing they've been called to do. Because they have focused on staying in Jerusalem. They've had an, a, a, a very abundant ministry in Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people coming to faith. Many of them who are people from ends of the earth, but they choose to tend to stay in Jerusalem, right? You get a, you get a sense that there's going to be a very large crowd of, of migrants who've, who've come in for the big festivals, come to believe in Jesus, and want to stay and learn more about it, right? That's why we have this whole problem with the growing church and so many Greek speakers and Greek-speaking widows that need to be cared for. So the church has to scatter into Judea and Samaria, and, and we see them spread out. In chapter 8, we see Philip, who, Philip the evangelist. Uh, he goes to Samaria and has this tremendous revival. You know, all of a sudden, I mean, the, the, the Samaritans are just responding in a huge way. And so they invite the apostles to come and, and confirm that, in fact, God's will does include Samaritans, right? Because there's still this skepticism. How could Samaritans really be loved by God, even though Jesus said, you're going to go to Samaria? So they come, they confirm, yet they're believers. The Holy Spirit comes on them, and, and quite often what we see in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit comes on as a discreet act to confirm to all of the believers back home that, yeah, those those kind of weird people that you don't like very much, they turned out to believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit's endorsing them, and you have to accept them as your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, so you need an entirely different attitude and approach to them. So we see the we see that, and then you know, chapter eight's exciting because then we actually have him, uh, Philip. He, he's having this huge revival in in uh, Samaria, and then uh, an angel says, "Go go to this lonely desert road," and there he meets the the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, which. That would be a resident of the end of the earth that he's there to encounter. Uh, Ethiopia was actually considered quite literally the end of the earth in classic re- literature at the time. So it's not an accident that this individual is from Ethiopia. He, in fact, is sort of one of your first uh, first fruit of the ends of the earth. Uh, happened to have been in Jerusalem for the festival. He's a God-fearer, uh, and so he's headed home. And we see, we meet some people like the conversion of Saul. Uh, it takes place in 8 through 12. And, and it's still in the immediate geographic region of uh, Judea and Samaria. That general area hasn't spread out to the ends of the earth, but it's clearly setting the foundation for that because we now have the conversion of Paul, who will be the, the greatest missionary uh, you know, the world's ever seen uh, and will open up the ends of the earth quite literally. Uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We also see uh, Peter and Cornelius and the receiving of the Holy Spirit by a family of Gentiles, which is another clear setting the foundation, getting ready to take it to the ends of the earth, because now you got a hated you know, Roman centurion, and he's received the Holy Spirit. He's part of God's family. He and his family are now part of the family of God. And so it's getting people ready. And then Acts chapter 13 and beyond is almost exclusively about the end of the earth. 
the focus from a human perspective shifts towards Paul. We still see tremendous activity by the Holy Spirit guiding Paul, go here, don't go there. Uh, we see the work of the Holy Spirit coming on people as they come into faith. Again, providing that endorsement by God that, yes, these people are part of the family. They are true, genuine Christians. Now they're going to have to deal with some issues with what it means to integrate the whole family of God in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and really come to some understanding there. But that's what Jesus lays out in one verse, this thing. You're going to go out into the whole world and you're going to do a very simple, straightforward task. Be witnesses. Tell what you've seen. Tell what you've heard. Tell what you've felt. Yes. Oh, yeah? As a building? Awesome. So it gives them this simple task. Be witnesses. Be witnesses. Right? And so we tend to get nervous about evangelism. Right? It tends to be a big deal in our big thing in our mind. But at the most basic, be witnesses. Tell the story. Tell your story. What have you experienced? What have you seen? Uh, we think we have to have a PhD in apologetics to argue with an unbeliever. But just be a witness. Right? That's the pattern then. It remains an effective pattern now. Not everyone's going to accept it. Not Read the book of Acts. Plenty of people didn't accept it there either. Nothing has changed. So then we come to verse 9. Right, we've had this, this thing which has set the foundation, not only given them their vision, given them their, their tasking, but has set the foundation for the entire book of Acts and the structure of the book of Acts so that we understand that the book of Acts is telling us how God, through the Holy Spirit, fulfills this vision, right? So we're not alone in this, just as Jesus promised. We are not alone. The Holy Spirit is here. Jesus is with us till the end of the age, as he promised in Matthew 28. In verse 9, when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus ascends to heaven. He is within a cloud, right, which... Typically, in the Bible, when you see a cloud show up, that's talking about God. Um, it's a, it's a, the cloud is traditional in the Old Testament. It was used a lot to protect people, to shield us from the glory of God, because we can't handle it. So here, it almost certainly indicates the presence of God, as Jesus himself, of course, being God, goes to heaven. In verse 10, we see two men in white robes appear. We're certainly to understand that they're angels. And then they ask the disciples this question, and it's kind of like, okay, get to work. What they specifically say is, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this Jesus, not some other Jesus, not some other person, is going to come in the same way that they just saw him go. Christ is going to return again. Jesus talked about that a lot while he was still with them. He returned in a cloud from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Gives us one of several passages that describe a little taste of what that will be like. But 
where the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So Christ will return again in a cloud from heaven. Just as he ascended, he will return for us. In the meantime, the church has work to do. And it's work that goes on to this day, right? The church uh, reaches out at all ends of the earth, uh, not just the local areas, but, but even now there are peoples and nations that have not heard the gospel, that have no scripture in their language, right? So the tasking to reach all nations, to bless all nations, if we look back at those promises to Abram and others, to, to be that all nations will be blessed, that hasn't yet been achieved because there are still people groups out in the world who have no scripture, who do not have the gospel. So the work of the church continues and will continue for the foreseeable future. Questions, comments, closing thoughts before we pray. The heat got to you. The heat, the heat's, yeah, you're like, uh, that's warm. I'm, I know. I said, just remember last week, it was cold and raining. And raining and cold. Yeah, that would be very uncomfortable. Yeah. Of course, it would be just as uncomfortable in the other direction uh, in uh, now. All right, well, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. We got wrapped a little bit early. I think it's probably because uh, by the time I got to dinner, all the water was gone, and I decided to get the sweet tea a couple of glasses of sweet tea and a cupcake uh, kind of got me going fast. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, as always, thank you for the glorious words of Scripture that you have given us, Lord. We love you. We love that for whatever reason you have chosen to include us as part of your plan, that you work through people, people filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for the example of the early church. We pray that we would live up to that example, that we too would work in the power of the Spirit, that we too would be witnesses wherever you lead us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.